Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Morning. And this morning, I'm going to read uh, Mark 9:42:50 in French. Um, we're going to start 42. Mais si quelqu'un scandalait un de ces petits qui croyant, il vaudrait mieux pour lui qu'on lui mue au cou de crosse de seul moulin et, et qu'on le jeta dans la mer. Si ta main est pour toi une occasion de coup, mieux vaut-toi en tirer manchotte dans ta vie que d'avoir deux mains d'aller dans la gêne et dans le feu qui s'éteint point. Si ton pied est pour toi une occasion de coup, le mieux vaut-toi en tirer boiteux dans la vie et que d'avoir les deux pieds d'être jeté dans la gente et dans le feu qui ne saint point. Et si ton œil est pour toi une occasion de chaque, arrachez-le. Mieux faut pour toi d'entrer dans le royaume de Dieu n'ayant qu'un œil, que d'avoir les deux yeux d'être jeté dans la gêne où leur verre meurt, point, où le feu ne s'éteint point, car tout l'homme sera salé de feu. Le sel est une bonne chose, mais si le sel devient un saveur, avec quoi Lasserez-vous Ayant seul le sel vous-même, en voyant en paix de l'un et les autres. Merci. Listen to that the rest of the morning. I love the French language. Oh, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids now. If you are elementary school, kindergarten through fifth grade, you may go. Or you may stay if you want to. So last week, uh, I was watching the uh, NBA playoffs uh, at my house, and um, my daughter, she said, is this March Madness, um, which was the month before. I said, no, this isn't March Madness. This is, this is the pros. College season's done. And it started a little conversation there in, uh, in our uh, family room about um, who could play in the pros and how much money they made and all that stuff. And one of my kids said, so you can just try out and be, be a professional player and make millions of dollars? I'm like, no, it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, and I actually, I looked up how many professional players there are in the NBA. Uh, there's only 360 out of the entire world. Uh, 360 people get paid to play basketball in the NBA. Um, you know, I was thinking about the, the requirements that the expectations 
um, that are put on professional athletes. Um, being a professional athlete, athlete requires uh, kind of two things. One is just a God-given gift uh, to, to excel at that level. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the, the phrase, the marketing phrase that Nike used was, like Mike, I want to be like Mike. Uh, and so all of us kids uh, wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And so we bought his shoes thinking that it would give us a 42-inch vertical, and I still can only jump about eight inches high. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of God-given gifts, but also of, of hard work. Um, you can have all of the gifts in the world, but if you don't put them to practice, if you don't work hard, you may be a good athlete, but you'll never be a great athlete. And, and once you become a pro athlete, there are some expectations, right? Um, so for these guys that are playing in the NBA Finals and the NBA Playoffs right now, um, they have to show up to practice. Um, if you're a, a basketball fan, then you immediately probably think of Allen Iverson when I say that. But um, <laughs> Practice, they have to show up to practice. Uh, you have to then show up and actually play the game. You have to be a good teammate. You have to learn how to play your part uh, on the team. There are expectations even at that level, especially at that level. And so in life, there are things that um, are worth doing and being that require something of us. And so why would we think that our Christian faith is any different? Some of us, I think we, the expectations are, are, are very low. The expectation is, well, you know, you, you go to church a, a few times a month. You, you open up the Bible a couple times a year. You pray a prayer. But, but the expectations that Jesus demonstrates in what Monamu just read are, are quite a bit more than that. So our Christian faith is no different. From the beginning, God had instructions to his people. And in the, when the world was perfect, when it was without sin, God still gave instructions to humanity. He said, eat. He said, work. He said, enjoy. And we also know he said, don't do this one thing, right? Don't eat from this one tree. There was expectations. There was instructions put in place. But eventually we know uh, Adam and Eve couldn't help themselves. That one thing that God asked them not to do, they did. And sin, when it came into the world, it makes people stupid. You can quote me on that. Sin makes people stupid. So those instructions for how to live how God intended, well, they had to increase. Those expect expectations became greater. And so there was all sorts of laws and rules put into place to designate those that were trying to follow the way of God and those that weren't. But even those rules, even if you could follow them perfectly, which nobody could, even those things were not enough to overcome the penalty of sin. Sin produces something in us. It takes us somewhere that we can't control. And so Jesus, he comes to earth. He comes to earth to pay the penalty for sin, to make it possible to be freed from our sin so that we can then again walk in obedience to the ways of God. But we know the world is still sinful. And so walking in God's ways and being a part of God's family, while it starts with us placing our faith in him, 
it then requires something else of us. There are expectations. There are expectations to be walking in this faith, to belong to Jesus. So our text this morning that Monomu just read is from Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 50. Um, and I'd encourage you to, to turn there because we're going to walk through this text this morning, just these short eight verses, and we're going to see some expectations that Jesus lays out for his disciples. Now, if you're, if you're just joining us, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark because we want to know who Jesus is, not who we think he is, not what the culture said he is, not what anybody else says, but what Jesus himself says about himself and what it means to follow him. So we're trying to figure that out. And then we're, we're trying to figure out, based on who Jesus is, what does it mean to follow him today? And then if we're to invite people into this relationship with Jesus, what are we inviting them into? So Jesus, he's got, at this point in his ministry, he's got all sorts of people uh, that he's interacted with. Religious leaders who are trying to keep their power uh, he's got people that uh, are, are very open about their, their need, their weaknesses. He's got people that are pretending like they're not weak and they've got it all together. There's crowds that show up. But Jesus' ministry starts when he designates 12 guys as his disciples. Now, we don't use this term anymore today. But the, the idea of discipleship is somebody who, who is learning, who is being taught by somebody else. And, and many of us are, many of you are discipled by all sorts of things in our culture, right? Maybe you have the, the one famous preacher who you listen to all their podcasts and, and all of the, watch all their videos, right? That you've learned from that particular person. I have a handful of men from a distance that I've learned from. Maybe you have people up close that have mentored you, that have taught you how to be a good husband or wife, good coworker, good leader in your workplace. Some of you have political pundits that you've just been in tune with them forever. They've discipled you into a particular political persuasion. When I was a kid, I was most discipled by sports. <laughs> I, I, I knew all the players. I knew the plays. I knew the history. I knew the pivotal moments. I was a disciple of the game. So all of us have been discipled and are being discipled by somebody or something. And so Jesus has these, this crew, this inner crew, that he's been walking with, that he's been discipling. And throughout this journey, we've seen the disciples have a lot of issues. <laughs> we often think of the 12 as like the superheroes of, of the, the New Testament. If you've been with us, we've seen quite the opposite. They doubt, they fail, they question, they wonder, they wander. I mean, all sorts of issues. So Jesus is continuing to instruct them. But these expectations for discipleship, they would, they would be taken up by all people that would follow Jesus after he left the earth. So these expectations, while they were given to a specific group of guys at a specific time, they're for all of us today. And Jesus opens up these expectations, uh, wanting to make sure that there's no room for confusion. So in order to get the point across, he uses what we call hyperbole. Hyperbole. It's those exaggerated statements, right? Some of you have heard these uh, in your own household. Like kids, when they're really hungry, what do they say? I'm starving. To which mom says, no, you're not. Let me tell you about some people that are starving, right? Or, or parents, they say, I'm drowning in work. Or maybe grandparents say, my feet are killing me. 
right? <laughs> we say things like, that plane ride took forever. Or, this is the best book ever written. I love you to the moon and back. I'm not, I don't quite get that one, but hey. <laughs> or my favorite one, which is like part hyperbole and part dad joke, okay? That joke is so old, the last time I heard it, I was riding a dinosaur. <laughs> so we use hyperbole, right? We understand when somebody says something that they, they don't mean literal, but they're trying to get a point across. They're trying to evoke a feeling or an idea in a way that, that sounds kind of extreme. So what does Jesus say in, in what Monamu just read? You have your Bibles open in front of you. What does Jesus say? He says, don't cause other people to stumble and don't make yourself stumble. What does he say? He says, it would be better if you're going to make somebody else stumble, it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck. Or what about yourself? It would be better if you cut off your hand, your foot, or plucked out your eye than to be led to sin by those things. So Jesus is using hyperbole to get across something serious, to get across some expectations. And being a disciple of Jesus has some expectations, in particular in how we view sin. So what does stumble mean? Well, it means to fall into sin. That's what Jesus is concerned about for his followers. What is sin? This is a a Christian word, isn't it? Uh, when we've been processing the events of the last couple of weeks with these mass shootings and with sexual abuse scandals and all these things, you, you don't hear the media use the word sin, do you? Evil, wrongdoing, whatever. But the word sin is, is pretty uniquely a Christian term. And so what is sin? Well, in one way... Sin is a wandering away, a drifting away from God's laws in both our thought and our action. That's one definition of sin. Uh, another defini definition of sin is literally to miss the target, as if you're, uh, you're an archer aiming at a target and you just you don't hit it. Your life is off target. Uh, at its fundamental level, sin is a rejection of God and his ways. From the garden to now, people have sinned. This is sin. Uh, John Piper is a pastor in the Midwest. He, he, he talks about how there's branches of sin, like the things that we see manifested in our culture today. Those are like branches or fruit of sin. But there's a trunk of sin. And it all, it all originates in how we view God. And he says this, what is sin? He says, it is the glory of God not honored, the holy of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. Now, in our culture today, even those who are not followers of God still have a sense of 
right and wrong, of good and evil. In thinking of this, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. So we have this idea that the ways of God are known even if we, aren't, we don't belong to him yet. Now we as Christians know even more clearly what God's ways are because we know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And we have his written word. And then when we place our faith in him, he gives us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, who is a, a counselor and a guide. Jesus says that this, the spirit of God leads us into all truth. So in the passage Monamu just read, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that in order to be his disciple, there are some expectations. And these are for us too. And so the first one is don't cause others to sin. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Hyperbole, yes. Seriousness, yes. Jesus came to free people from the grip of sin. And so you and I as Christians, if we're to do something that leads other people, other believers to sin, watch out. In this particular passage, little ones doesn't mean kids, although it includes them. It means any believer who is younger in the faith. This image of a millstone doesn't resonate with us, but a millstone was, looked something like this, and it was so heavy that usually it would be strapped to a donkey, and the donkey would, would walk in circles in order to grind the grain. So this is the illustration that Jesus used. It resonated with his disciples in that moment. And for us today, it should make us tremble a little bit and consider the way that we think and act and treat other people especially in the church. I mean, this last week, there was this massive uh, report that was put out displaying how so many abuses have happened in so many churches. And these Jesus' words are to those abusers, to those that have committed wrongdoing, those that know better and yet still continue to sin, to cause others heartache and harm. So this, these words of Jesus should make us all tremble a little bit to consider the weight, the influence that we have. How our witness may, or lack of witness may, lead people astray. This is why I don't have a, a, a little Christian fish on my car. <laughs> right? I have a big one. <laughs> when people know how good I am, right? No, I... I Quite the opposite. I don't have one of these on my car because I know I will invariably cut somebody off, right? I will make a, a boneheaded move on the road, and then that person behind me is going to go, ah, look at that Christian, right? If you're, if you're a parent, you understand this concept even more. You understand the idea that if we 
teach things or demonstrate things that are not in accordance with God's word in our family, our kids are going to mimic that. One day when I was driving, uh, somebody cut me off and I said a word that I wasn't proud of saying as they cut me off. And in the back, I heard a little two-year-old voice repeat that word. And I went, oh, he's listening. <laughs> I need to watch myself, right? So your children are watching you. What, what they see is what they'll be. And the same thing in this context, right? We're a family. Watch each other. Well, what we do and say matters. Now, as a pastor, there's even more weight put on me. James 3.1 says this. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so when pastors commit abuse or, or they uh, act contrary to God's word, they, they cause other people to sin, there's an extra heavy weight, extra judgment that is on them. When I was in college ministry years ago, there was a, a young man that, that I was ministering to who had a, a, just a major alcohol problem. His uh, parents owned a store, um, and so he had actually had access to, to alcohol. He would sneak it from his parents' store all the time. And, and there would be times when I'd come over to visit him, and I'd be like, hey, man, what you been up to this weekend? He's like, oh, man, I just finished my 12th beer. Uh, I got you know, a fifth of vodka sitting over there that I'm going to be hitting next. And he knew it was wrong, but he was so wrapped up in it. it was, he was medicating himself so much that he, he didn't know what else to turn to. And so we began to, I began to build a relationship with him and, and try and encourage him toward, toward better habits and, and teach him about the ways of the Lord. And he engaged with our, our college ministry that we were working with. And he was friends with some of the guys in the college ministry. One weekend I found out that some of the guys in the college ministry had went out with him and went drinking. These were Christian guys. And I, and I sat down with them and I said, listen, like, you don't know how damaging that is for him. Like, you know his issues, and yet you went and you fed those very issues that he's trying to break free of. I was so disappointed in them. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be aware that we have the power to either strengthen people's faith or to greatly damage it. Uh, I'll be honest, one of the ways I've seen this play out in a more disappointing way in recent years has been through social media. The way that I see believers interact with each other and the world around them, it's disheartening at the least. It's angering at times for me at the most. So Jesus gives this expectation to his, his followers to be aware. But then he turns the, the, to them as well. And the other expectation is that we would not cause ourselves to sin. Not cause ourselves to sin. And he uses this illustration, right? He says, if, you're, if your hand is, is leading you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot is leading you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to stumble, gouge it out. Pretty extreme, right? Jesus was definitely not being literal in that, but he's trying to get a point across. He was trying to illustrate the reality of sin and where it leads. Where does sin lead? Well, Jesus says, sin leads to hell. Sin leads to hell. And he uses uh, this, this quotation to, to talk about 
how terrible a place hell is. And it is the ultimate destination of those who are in sin. And so as we think about how seriously we take sin, I think it's important to ask, do I take my sin as seriously as Jesus takes it? Do I take my sin as seriously as Jesus takes it? Am I I willing to give up anything in my life that would lead me into sin? This is a struggle because I think uh, oftentimes we think that we're stronger than we really are. And and we even lie to ourselves. Well, I I can stop that sin no matter or whenever I want to do it. I I can't tell you many conversations I've had over the years with people who are stuck in a sin pattern. And I say, do you see what this is doing to you? Do you see what this is leading you to? And they say, oh, oh, no, no, it's not that bad. I can stop whenever I want. And it's like, well, why don't you stop? Well, because I don't want to. Because you are trapped by that. You're not even willing to admit it. And so until we realize our sin for what it is, we'll keep offering it a guest room in our house. We'll keep making room for it. We'll keep justifying it. And one of the ways we do that is we go, well, my sin's not as bad as that person's sin. Somebody once compared sin to to chocolate-covered feces. Right? Tastes good on the outside. (laughs) Tastes like chocolate. And that's what we do with our sin. It's not so bad, and we make room for it. And that's why Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples both take it seriously and understand where it will lead them. And you know what? Hell isn't uh, just experienced then. It's experienced now, too. There's degrees of hell that we walk through because we engage in our sin. Our suffering, the penalty of our sin is paid now just as much as it will be paid. Well, not just as much. In a way, as it leads to ultimate payment. Now, sin is not caused by your hand or your foot as if your appendage is some kind of independent entity, right, on your body. Stupid hand. We don't do that, right? No, sin comes from within us. The Bible talks about the heart. But sin that is within us is given opportunities that we allow into our lives. Things we see, things we do, places we go. The hand representing things that we do. The foot representing places that we go. The eye representing things that we see. I mean, nobody will debate, right, that people that struggle with alcohol shouldn't go to bars. But what about people that struggle with lust or anger or gossip? How do we push back against those things as well? So what Jesus is saying is if if you identify that there are things in your life that are turning your heart towards sin, Cut them off now before what's inside expresses itself on the outside and leads you away from the goodness of God. And Jesus uses hyperbole because he wants to shock the you-know-what out of you. Not only so that we see how sin needs to be dealt with, but so that we also understand where sin leads us. The apostle Paul talks about what you get paid for your sin. You know what you get paid? says the wages of sin 
is death. Wages of sin is death. So do we take sin as seriously as we should? And this is where our cultural blinders come in. We focus on certain sins and we minimize other sins. We make some bigger and some smaller, some even acceptable sins. So we need to ask ourselves, do we take sin as seriously as we should? Do, should I be listening to the, the music I listen to? Should I be watching the TV programming or play the video games that I'm playing? Should I be in the relationship I'm in? Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transform. So after talking about where sin leads, Jesus then kind of pivots off the hyperbole for a minute to good old-fashioned illustrations. And Jesus uses salt to talk about two more expectations, two more requirements for discipleship. He says this, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, if you're like me, you read that, you're like, what? (laughs) Salted with fire? What are you talking about? I'm going to be honest, there's some question on what exactly Jesus meant by this statement. One idea uh, connects the sacrificial system that God had, where salt acts as a symbol of the covenantal relationship the children of Israel had with God. For every disciple of Jesus, the salt of the covenant is this divine fire, which purifies and consummates sacrifice. It's the alternative to the fire of hell that consumes. And so the fire for the disciples would be referring to the Holy Spirit. Another interpretation views this fire as the trials and the persecutions that the disciples of Jesus will face. Where his previous um, examples or statements related to the expectation that our whole selves are committed to God and not given to sin, cut those things off. Here, also, every true disciple is expected to to be in total sacrifice to God. And as salt accompanied the temple sacrifices, so fire, or you could say persecution, trials, and suffering, will also accompany the true disciples' sacrifices. So this particular illustration would have special meaning for the early church as it dealt with persecution. It would help them understand that the purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as something unique to them or to their Christian experience. Because again, as Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. So considering the the total commitment that Jesus requires, uh, I think this is the most likely explanation. That we would be, as believers, ready for sacrifice and suffering. Be ready for sacrifice and suffering. Um, I like to write a little bit, and one of my English teachers years ago said, never mix metaphors, right, because it gets, get, gets a little confusing. Well, Jesus then mixes a metaphor. Uh, he goes from this idea of salt to another one. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So this fourth expectation, this fourth requirement that Jesus gives is that we, as believers, we would keep our witness. Keep our witness in him. 
In this whole section, there's been arguing among the disciples. There's been a wrong view of greatness. There's been an exclusive mentality that has started to creep into their, to their hearts and mind. And in Jesus' day, salt was a, a key ingredient in food preservation and flavor. And it was even used in the ancient world for medicine. Now, what Jesus says here, when he says if it loses its saltiness, well, we, we know scientifically salt can't lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, in the Middle East, there's a sea called the Dead Sea, and it's salt. It's got such a high concentration of salt that you can literally float on top of it. And they would collect salt from the Dead Sea for medicine and for cooking and for all these things. But oftentimes that salt would have all sorts of impurities in it, you know, gypsum and bits of sand and who knows what else. And so it would essentially make the salt, if you didn't purify it, it would make it bad salt. It would make it salt that wasn't as purely salty as it should be. And what is Jesus saying then? Jesus is saying, very succinctly, you are a useless disciple if you aren't following my ways. If you're not following my ways, it's useless. In the second half of this, Jesus talks about this idea of preserving peace among each other. He says, be at peace with each other. Now, I can only imagine what illustration Jesus uh, might have used if he would have given this same teaching in the social media era. Be at peace with each other. What does peace look like? What does peace feel like? If you were to give an, a tangible example of, of peace in your household, in your relationships. Jesus ends with this because this is what he wants for his disciples. He, he wants there to, to quit being competition, quit, being a, quit pursuing worldly means of greatness. He wants the disciples to pursue peace. And what an example, what a witness that is to a world that is desperately searching for peace. And the things that steal our peace is our, our own sin towards others, our own sin that we let remain in our lives. These things steal our peace. But Jesus here is saying, I want you to know true peace that's found in me. You know, Jesus was the ultimate sin killer life transformer and peacemaker. And while these aren't the only things that he expects from his followers, in this moment in time, it's exactly what the disciples needed to hear. And maybe it's also what you need to hear this morning. You need to know that no one takes your sin more seriously than Jesus. He took it so seriously that he died for it. Before you even came into existence, Jesus had you in mind. He cares about your life. He cares about your decisions. And his expectations and his requirements, they're actually good. They're actually freeing. They actually lead us away from the bondage that sin creates and toward freedom. And so when you think of these requirements, when you think of what it means to follow Jesus, Know that it is done out of his great love for you and I. And he demonstrated that on the cross.
So this morning, I want us to take a moment and have the worship team come back up. And maybe the Lord was stirring something in your heart today through the songs that were sung earlier or through the, the words that we just read. Maybe there's some action that you feel like you might need to take. Because I'll tell you what, uh, we can hear a lot of information, and we do hear a lot of information, but unless it leads to transformation, then we're in the same place that we were when we came in this morning. Still burdened, still overwhelmed, still having our secret sins behind us thinking we got them under control. But this morning, Jesus wants to set you free. He wants you to know that rejecting those things, cutting those things off is the best choice you'll make. It leads to true freedom. And so this morning, I just ask if you would bow with me in prayer and just take a moment. And and I'm going to ask you to pray something just between you and God, but only pray it if you mean it. Only pray it if you mean it. You you don't need to make this fake because it's just between you and God. But here's the prayer that I would ask that you would consider praying. Lord, search my heart. If there is any sin that I must repent of, will you show it to me? Search my heart. If there is any sin that I need to repent of, will you show it to me? Don't pray that unless you mean it. But if you do mean it, be prepared for the Lord lovingly to come in and to show you what that is. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation, we, we feel the weight of our sin. We, we, know the, we know the ugliness that is in us. And what we do is we let it push us into the ground. It's like digging, digging our own grave. Condemnation makes us feel depressed and overwhelmed and like giving up. That is not what Jesus brings to you. Jesus brings conviction, which shows us the reality of our sin, but then shows us that there is a way to be free from it. We see it clearly for what it is, and it hurts so good. And when we willingly repent of that sin, which means to to have a change of mind, to turn away from it, and God meets us right there and begins to bring freedom and transformation. So, Father, this morning I just ask for all of us, myself included, Father, that this remaining sin that we have in our life, that you would show us what it is in your loving conviction that we might be people that pursue your holiness, that we might take sin as seriously as you take it. And Father, we thank you for how seriously you took it, that you paid the penalty for it on our behalf so that we might know your righteousness and your goodness. Oh, this morning, Lord, as each person in here is thinking and processing and praying, Would you meet us where we're at? Would we know your goodness and your gentleness and your forgiveness? And would we walk in that, Father? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.